0: 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, and the last verse of that chapter, verse 46, and we'll go through 19, uh, verse 18. So, 1 Kings eighteen forty-six uh, through 19. And God's word says this And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment. And ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray for us to understand as we interact together with your word today. Help me as I preach, Lord. Help us to listen. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit's work as we participate. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I saw and I said, boy, my cutoff was 20. If there's 20 people here, uh, less than 20, I'm preaching the same sermon next week because our church needs this. Um, So we're right about there. So various people aren't able to be here today. We all need what we're about to hear. This is part of a series we're doing on God being still on the throne. God's sovereign. Boy, we're looking at things in our world. We're shaking our heads and saying, what's next? What's next? What's next? Uh, you hear, wow, the inflation is uh, uh, a 30-year high. And then, then a month later, it's the 40-year high. And you say, what's going on? And how can we uh, survive? And, and what's God doing? And who's really in charge? And the answer is God is on the throne, God is always the one in charge, and God is still on the throne. So this is a little subset of that, a series of of messages on God being with his people personally during times of distress. Last week we talked about how God provided physically for Elijah, and I was thinking about uh, basically three categories of life where we just need God so much uh, all the way through. That's our physical provision, what we eat and drink, and the shelter over our heads. Uh, The other area is our emotional and spiritual lives. We need God. We need him to save us, but we need him to sustain us through these ebbs and flows of our spiritual life and our walk with God all the way to heaven. And we need God uh, in, in, in the area of our relationships with others with what's going on in our families and our neighbors and on the job and and how we discuss even world events with people uh, in our daily lives. So this was a a look and seeing of a famous event in the Old Testament where we had a man who was hurting emotionally. The setting is this. Elijah came out of nowhere, declared that there would be a famine in the land for three years, went to the brook, and God fed him. Last week we talked about that. God fed him with the ravens. God led him to the widow of Zarephath, and God provided for him. Uh, He emerged then, and in chapter 18, verse 17, uh, he came out, and and King Ahab said, uh, Where have you been, you troubler of Israel? In verse 17. He reappears on the scene. There's a famous debate upon the mountain. You've got Jezebel, who was the wife of King Ahab. Jezebel was not born into God's people, she was not from Israel. She came from a different region. She brought her idols in with her, and Ahab allowed that to stand. And there was a merging of worldliness with spirituality, and they kind of came together. And what always happens when that happens and converges is the worldliness won out, even though it was God's land and God's people. This happens in churches and denominations. Uh, The two cannot live side by side and it seems like, uh, as they say, the one bad apple uh, spoiling the bunch, the rest are overcome and the land of Israel was in terrible condition. Elijah wasn't lying when he said twice in this passage, they've forsaken the God of their fathers, they've denied the covenant God, they've torn down the churches and they've built the idols, and there was this big setting, and you might have heard this if you grew up in church, if you didn't, if you've never heard this story, wait till after the sermon, go home this afternoon and read in between chapter 17 and 19, how Jezebel's prophets of Baal, the worldly prophets, were there trying to call down fire from heaven. And they couldn't do it. And God rained down fire. The confrontation was in verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people up there on Mount Carmel. And he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Uh, People are always called to make a choice. And we don't have, um, I wouldn't even say the word luxury, but we don't have the option of blending the two. Uh, God is always saying, all the way back to Joshua, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Isaiah 1, I'll give you the best or the worst, the fat of the land or the opposite. Even after we die, the Bible presents what happens after life as the best or worst, heaven or hell. There's no in between, there's no limbo, there's no place where we can just kind of float and, and kind of pick and choose what we want. The calling on the mountain from Elijah to God's people was either Baal or God. One of them is God and one of them is a fake. And we see what happened, and we know that that uh, God sent the fire down and consumed uh, the offering to him that Elijah had, had uh, sacrificed. And then, what to do about the rain. And Elijah calls down and prays then for God to send the rain. At the time of the offering of the oblation, this is verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they put the prophets of Baal to death. They got rid out of their land, uh, the worldly influence that was there. And you can imagine Elijah saying, wow, all of this uh, running and hiding, all this torment, all of this, and we see now God has shown himself, and revival is coming in the land. Think of how excited he was. Think of how you would feel to see the tide turn. And he prayed, and God sent the rain after all those years. And he warned Ahab, he said, you better get down the mountain, go home to Jezebel, uh, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black, and the clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and that's where we pick up our story. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab's in his chariot. Ahab's got his his, uh, wheels riding. But just with the adrenaline of the moment, perhaps, or with God's energy with what had happened, he ran down that hill. Uh, You hear of stories like that where people in the moment, and he was exhilarated. And then it took a turn in Elijah's mind for the worst. So this morning, uh, from the Lord to Elijah, we're going to hear about God's steadfastness as we talk about that. Three points. The preliminary conversations which led to the external crisis in Elijah's life. Then we see the first interaction between Elijah and the Lord, uh, which God helped him deal with his internal crisis. And the second interaction between Elijah and the Lord, which helped Elijah adopt a divine perspective. First of all, the preliminary conversations that led to this crisis. Ahab went back, it says in verse 1 of 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now it seems like um, what Elijah thought would happen would be the logical thing that would happen. If you're saying Baal is God and the God of Israel is not the true God and the God of Israel clearly, demonstrably shows that he's God, you'd think there'd be a conversion uh, looking at the facts and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent. I'm going to turn to the true God. And I think Elijah was thinking and hoping that the tide had turned, that maybe Jezebel would even forsake her childhood idols and turn to the true God. Ahab quite likely had this on his mind. You see, Jezebel? Uh, You see? You see? And maybe he was hoping for some peace in the land and for a returning to God. Later on in his life, he would repent. Wicked Queen Jezebel represents the world in this story. She was not one of God's people. It's not that it wasn't possible for her to become God's person. Remember the widow in Zarephath from Jezebel's uh, home region. God saved her. Uh, She was not eliminated just because she was not born into the church, so to speak. She had a choice. People were drawn then Jesus said in the New Testament, Everyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast them out, whoever comes to me. That was true then, as it, as it in the Old Testament is in the New. But as he told her all that had happened at the General Assembly, her side had lost, hoping quite likely for a conversion on her part. She did the opposite, she doubled down. Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. As one of who? As one of the prophets of Baal who'd been slain. I'm going to kill you. And the result, as Jezebel doubled down in her opposition to God, as she denied reason and common sense, and as her whole perspective was, destroy, destroy, destroy power. As a result of that, Elijah became afraid. Previously, uh, all through the text, it is said, God led Elijah. Every time Elijah spoke, I'm giving you the words of God. God put him here, God put him there. The brook, the widow. In this case, the text doesn't say that. Elijah heard the threat from this evil queen, and he took off in fear for his life. Some people said he really outran her power, even. Uh, they look at the geography of where he went, and he was way, way, way out of range. So you have this first series of communications that, that made an external threat, but what became worse is what was going on inside of Elijah what he was thinking as he was running. And the important piece to understanding this text is to see the parallel between Elijah and Moses. You've got to see this all the way through the text. This will help you understand this passage. In verse 4, Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. Just kill me, God. Take away my life. I'm done. I'm done. I came out. I stuck my neck out for God. Spoke these words. You preserved me all these years. Stuck my neck out even further. I saw a great spiritual victory. And I thought the tide would turn, and I was faithful, and I did your words. And if you're not going to truly convert your people, if you're truly not going to do a work in this land, then just kill me and let me go to heaven. I'm done. Now, I think that a lot of us, if we stop and think about it, can relate to where he was. Maybe you grew up in the church and you heard the stories and then uh, at at some point in time you said, this is not just my parents' faith, this is my faith. And then you hit the hardship and you would heard the promises about if you do this and and in our minds we we still live in this human uh, works righteousness, works reward system. And life doesn't go the way that you think it would go or should go for somebody who loves God. We've been there. In the wilderness, Moses had the same thing. He'd seen the miracles. He'd seen the plagues. He'd seen the Red Sea parted. He'd seen all these things. And then we see him in Numbers 11, 15, saying the same type of a thing. Moses in the wilderness, uh, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I might not see my wretchedness. Should have gone one way and it went the other. Think of a parent who has a little child. Oh man, what a privilege. What a good thing. What a good thing to be able to have it. And you have your days and maybe your church brings in this video series We grow our kids God's way. And you say, I did everything right. Boy, I did everything. I did everything right. Oh, boy, we had our family quiet times. We prayed for them. We did everything right. What parents we were. Everything we could learn, we did this. And now, God, you owe us because we did everything right. You owe me. Even Bible passages. I'm going to tell you something from Hebrew. Uh, Where I grew up, we had it drilled in as young families. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. So this is my guarantee. Then I heard that somebody uh, who knew their Hebrew said, you know, here's an alternate and probably even a better way to translate this thing. Let a child do whatever he wants, and when he's old, it's going to be hard for him to jump out of that track. Um, we don't know. We can get discouraged as parents, as Christian parents, when we do everything right and it doesn't the formula doesn't work. As a church plant, starting a church, you do this, 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 then God will do that, 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 that. And we take these things as a mantra, as a as a truth. And when we come up against opposition and come up against Things not happening the way because the formula doesn't. We get super discouraged. And here's Elijah. Were Moses and Elijah's expectations reasonable from a human perspective? Think about the people that followed Jesus. And they saw Jesus and they saw miracles. And a couple of them got to go up on that Mount of Transfiguration. And they uh, would say things like, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, God, when you're, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, let me sit on the right and him on the left. And and they saw this. And then uh, just refusing to believe that Jesus' kingship was not the kingship they had in mind. And, And he goes to the cross and they take off. And there's despair and there's hurt. Peter's saying, I'm just going to go fishing. People have been very, very hard on Elijah in this passage. I, I, they've pounded on him. <laughs> Pastors, commentators, they preach this passage. And boy, Elijah takes a, gets a bad rap. I tell you, I'd rather have God be my judge than people who preach this passage. God at least knows my frame. He knows I'm dust. <laughs> Heard a guy once when I was a kid. He ran from a woman. He was so cowardly. He ran from a woman. I would run from that woman too. <laughs> she was powerful and she was vengeful. What in the world kind of statement is that? Uh, was he, was he uh, not doing anything that the rest of us wouldn't do to take off? People say, well, he thought it was all about him. He made it all about himself and not about God. Well, maybe we can do that sometimes. I was a young seminarian. I had a pastor down there in Pensacola who trained me, and it was my mentor. And I called back from the place I was because the pastor wasn't acting like I thought a pastor should act like. He was, he was hurting over some things, and I said, John, what's going on? Explain this to me. And John said, Dave, what you've just heard is the lonely howl of the top dog. He said, that's all you're hearing. He'll be fine. He'll get himself together. He'll pray. He's got a good track record of of walking with the Lord. He's just having a hard time right now. Give him some grace and, and, and quit being so hard on him. Elijah had seen the pinnacle, and he'd come back down. And he was just saying, God, then just kill me. Just kill me. Be glad that God doesn't treat his people like God's people sometimes treat people. What did God do when Elijah laid under that tree and said, God, kill me? Well, God didn't do what some of us might have done, what I might have done. You ungrateful servant of mine, here I kept you fed by the brook, I sent the food with those ravens, I sent you to that widow, and you had flour and oil that didn't run out, and now this is how you treat me? You just want to die? What did God do? God didn't say, I'm going to find somebody else. You're done. You're sidelined. Your ministry is over. Didn't say like what was said to a friend of mine one time who went on to become a pastor, uh, uh, but he left a, a certain school, and the guy said as he was getting kicked out of the school for a theological reason, he says, God has used you in the past, but God will never use you again. Uh, boy, I'm glad God's not like that. What did God do for Elijah? What does the text say? He allowed him to sleep, and he gave him nourishing food. It says, uh, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And Elijah laid down and slept under that broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank, and his exhaustion from the adrenaline, emotional high, the running, the moving, everything going, he needed more sleep. He laid down and he slept again. And the angel of the Lord let him sleep some more and then tapped him on the shoulder, woke him up, said, hey, get up and eat. You're going to need this food. This is going to give you strength. Going to have a conversation later, and it would be a good conversation between the Lord and Elijah. But you can't argue sometimes with sleep and comfort food. Sometimes, when I talk to, to, to folks uh, and they're having a tough time in their family, I say, I'm just going to pray for you to have a good night's sleep tonight. And that's what I pray for. God attended his physical needs. Maybe we could even try this with a cranky spouse or a cranky child, or a a cranky friend, or a cranky neighbor. From a distance, it seems like that's the godly approach. Delete the text message. Let them remove the social media post without that screenshot, so you can not have to hold it over their head. Allow for an apology. Then we get to the third point which is the second conversation between Elijah and the Lord, which has so much to teach us right here where we are. We're at a crossroads in our church world, in our political world, and are questioning what God is doing. And we see that second interaction that God has. Uh, God leads him. He arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He took him back to where it all began. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God had given the law. Um. So Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, the same place. It's the cave, the cleft of the rock where Moses stood. You remember when Moses was there and Moses met with God. In Exodus thirty three twenty two, 22, God said to Moses, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand till I've passed by. then I will take away my hand and you'll see my back but my face shall not be seen. He was back at the place where the law had been given. He understood the historical significance of of the place. Maybe we don't so much today, but it would be like somebody who said, I want to study freedom or democracy or something. I want to come where the Declaration of Independence was signed. I just want to sit here, and I want... I want something to happen in in, in the place where I'm trying to establish freedom. I want it to be here in a historical way, to see a place. There's something about going back, uh, taking your kids back to the place where you grew up and letting them see those places, trying to get them to understand you. And God had taken Elijah back to the very spot where Moses had been and where the law had been given. So he's back there where it all began. And God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you would say the same thing I would say. I don't even know, God, why do you have me here? What am I doing here? I don't know. And so all Elijah could do was say, I'm here, and I'm here uh, in this place because you brought me here. And I'm just going to tell you what's going on from my perspective. He said it, God, I've been jealous for you. God is a jealous God. God wants his people to be jealous for his glory. We should care about and be sad when people don't know the Lord. And when they give glory to the opposite things. And he said, I've been jealous for you, God, I've been jealous for your glory. He said, the people forsook your covenant. They have been aggressive persecutors of, of your people. He said, I'm the only one who's left. And God says to him, then you go. Verse 11, he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper, better translated a sound of a thin silence. Fire, strong wind, rocks crashing. What if you were Elijah? And you'd gone through all this and God had delivered you and God had shown you this. I mean, I think of something like from the Lord of the Rings when those mountains are throwing stones at each other and things are raining down and, and all of that. And you say, well, God wants me to see his awesomeness in this. But that's not where God was to be found at that time. God was in, we've always seen in like our King James uh, versions and other translations, a still small voice. It's better in a thin silence. And I wanted to look at you guys today and I said, I'm going to do this. So I'll, I'll subject you to this. This is, this is uh, the, the rationale for the, the, for the understanding of the thin silence. Uh, King James says a still small voice. I always heard still small voice. Uh, this man says, this Hebrew scholar, in the Hebrew phrase, kol de mama Dakah. The first word is a noun in the construct uh, uh, state meaning sound of or voice of. The third word is an adjective meaning thin or fine and qualifying the critical second word. The second word is a noun that occurs only three times in the Old Testament. Here, Job four sixteen and Psalm 107.29, it refers to stillness or silence. From its etymology always an uncertain line of argument, it has been suggested that it means a profound, meaningful silence, such as following a catastrophe or accompanying a great expectation, not necessarily an audible voice. And this man writes, in my judgment, the best rendering of the Hebrew phrase is, quote, a sound of thin silence. If you look at your, your uh, translation, you probably have a note. We do it in our ESV where it says, or a sound, thin silence. Why is this important? For one, because sometimes people hear that phrase, a still small voice, and they use that to justify a lot of weird, ungodly stuff. And there's no defense against it. Oh, you heard the small voice? Oh, God's telling you? Then you just go ahead and do it, and there's no corrective on it. Um, It can be misinterpreted that way. Not that God doesn't lead, not that God doesn't with His Holy Spirit uh, guide and direct us, but that actual still small voice, uh, what God was doing was saying something else that we're going to get to. How God wasn't in the fire at that time. Now one time, uh, probably the worst way I've ever preached this, I was a kid. We were going through the worship wars and I was against all of the razzle dazzle at the time. And so I I preached a sermon. I, I walked into the worship wars, and I did this wrong. And I said, you get the fire. God's not there. You get the, uh, you get the crashing cymbals. You get the smoke machines in your services. You get the, and I call them the dancing girls. You get the, the team up there, and you get all that stuff. And how can you hear God? It's all emotional. It's trying to sway your emotions. And God is in the still, small voice. And some woman, if I could remember who it was, came up and thanked me because she said she finally understood that passage. And I'm like, 20 years later going, yeah, but that was wrong. You finally misunderstood that passage. Because was not God in fire and crashing things and rocks? When the Ten Commandments were given in that very spot, that first time around, God was there. Remember, the people were all afraid. They took off back to their place. First they're out, we're going to go hear God. And then then God, the cacophony of of power that God showed as he gave those commandments. What was happening here is God at this time did all those same things and Elijah would have known what those things were and Elijah was maybe ready for God to give him some new commandments to these people. And it's, wait a minute. Not this time. God is powerful. God is in fire and rocks. And you can look at those things. This time, in this case, he was in that quiet. And Elijah was not going to be the new Moses to bring a new thing because the first thing didn't work. The point is this. There wasn't going to be a new thing. No additional Ten Commandments. What God gave on Mount Sinai was good and right and sufficient for the time and it was still good and right and sufficient for the time because it was connected to God's plan all the way through. You're going to see darkness. You're going to see people rise up from the grave. Read your Gospels. When Jesus died, there was a lot of darkness weather events that are unexplainable except to say God was in those events because God was doing that thing but in this case in this case Elijah you just need to carry on because I'm not doing all that dramatics right now the plan is working even if you don't think it is that's the message and he asks him the same question again what are you doing here Elijah Elijah Elijah, you know, he's like, well, all I can do is just say the same answer I said the first time because I still don't quite get it. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your uh, altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That's it. A lot of times we look and we forget God's working God's plan. And God is the one to trust to work God's plan. If I, we all had to stand up and say what we thought God should do next. Uh, or write it down and then read our answer. A lot of us would have different answers. Uh, we better just be glad God's got it down and God's doing what God's doing. First Samuel. Same type of a situation. Samuel's farewell speech. And he's getting ready to talk to the people as he's going away and, and departing after his works. First Samuel 12, verse 16. Uh, uh, now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you've done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves for a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. One more proof that God can be in thunder and rain. We're not saying that. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And here's the the kicker. This This is the same thing that Elijah learned in the cave. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And Samuel had a little crisis and he had to be able to say, No, God's plan. God's working his plan. Good, bad, bad. Worldliness comes in, God takes care of his church, God takes care of his people, and God's plan is the same. It's up to us to lovingly submit to the loving plan that God made. And what did God do then here in 1 Kings? He put put Elijah back in the fight. It was a beautiful restoration. He's talking to him. He says, no, Elijah, you've got a job to do. You're going to anoint this person. You're going to anoint this person. You're going to pick Elisha and anoint this person. You've got a job to do. It's not over for you. It's not over. I've got this and this and this for you. It's very similar to Jesus meeting Peter on the beach after the resurrection and him walking with Peter and saying, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, you know I do, Lord. Yes, I'd love at him saying, Feed my sheep. You've got a good job to do. Yeah, you were here. Yeah, you were discouraged. Restoration for God's people. Get back in the fight. Be encouraged in the Lord. There's always been a restoration of the remnant. Somebody wrote, Elijah had been mistaken. If he thought that the idolatry of Jezebel had been the last word in Israel, if he died for you, he saved you, he called you, he gave you repentance and faith, you followed him. Listen, if you get discouraged, hey, the best of us have gotten discouraged elijah better than 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 me for sure, better than all of us. If Elijah can get discouraged, we can get discouraged. Don't beat yourself up over it and don't beat each other up over that. But understand, God is a restoring God and he loves you so much as his people. He's going to help you dust off and get back in the fight. So I've been listening to this song. I got one of these free, you know, song services, you know, 90 days free every album ever recorded and all that stuff. And so I looked for this band I like a lot to see if there was anything new from them. And there was something new. It was old. A band called The Water Boys, and it was in Dublin. It was 1986, year before I got married. And and wow, what a live, beautiful live recording. The Fisherman's Blues album had not been released yet. That was a year from coming. And boy, uh, oh, Paul and I went and saw him in concert about 10 years ago, and it was wonderful down in New Haven. But in this concert, I heard something I'd never heard, and you guys need to hear this. So stay with me on this. He said, Here's a song called The Thrill Is Gone. And I thought, Oh, it's the B.B. King thing? Is that? That's fine. It wasn't. It was a song he'd written called The Thrill Is Gone. And it was a man talking to his wife. He says, I'm too tired to even try and fake it out, I'm too tired to pretend. All I can feel is sadness because what's between us, the thrill is gone. Talked about the skies crying. He talked about them talking all day like um, about the old times, but they were strangers in their, in their relationship. And he said, even in all of our conversation with each other as husband and wife, all the only four words I heard is the thrill is gone. And they've got a violinist in that band. And, and sometimes the right violinist can, make a, can, can cry. And, and that violinist is crying. It's a powerful song. It's a sad song to think of. The thrill is gone. Uh, they're committed to the relationship because they gave their words, but the thrill is gone. It's just over. And he keeps saying, and we'll never get it back, and we'll never get it back, and we'll never get it back, and we'll never get it back. And I thought that's the end of the song. But it's not. The violin continues to cry. I pictured the wife crying because she's in agreement. And the drum keeps, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, you hear this restraint of a Van Morrison song, which is, the healing has begun. And boom, boom, boom. And then he says, we'll walk down the avenue again. We'll walk down the avenue and smile. And someday we'll know it's all worthwhile because the healing has begun. And you just see this note of triumph and hope coming out of it. And it's not that the healing has happened, but it's begun. And they're walking down the street together. And She's wearing her red dress and her Sunday coat and all the rest. And it's good, and it's coming back. That can happen in a marriage, for one thing. I'll say that. If both people love the Lord and want it, that can be covered. It takes two. Both people wanting it. But in the Christian life, so many of us have said, it's just not what it was when I first got saved. I used to see people come to the Lord, and I felt like God was leading me and guiding me, and the thrill is gone. It's gone. Elijah didn't say, I'm not going to be your person anymore. He just said, take me to heaven because this Christian life, this joy, this seeing you is done. And God said, no, the healing has begun. Get back in the fight. Live for God. Live for me. I've still got work for you to do. You can't opt out. And you can't walk away. And you can't just become a gosh potato. You can't just uh, revel in your five hundred channels with nothing on anyway. Uh, don't don't do what people like me are tending to do. Uh, just uh, forgive it all. I'm going to I'm going to run. Into, I'm going to drop into sports and just follow sports because that's a, that's something that's controllable and that's something that's uh, no live for God. So it ain't going so good with your. Adult kids right now. Uh, You can't opt out with that and say, then just kill me and I'm a failure and maybe you're a little bit of a... No, love those kids. Be that grandparent. Be that member of that church. God can give the hope. Uh, Doesn't the Bible say that he who gave you Jesus Christ, will he not along with him freely give you all things? And maybe some of us are at the stage where we just need to sleep and we just need to eat a nourishing meal that the angel of the Lord will cook for us. We just need that little bit of a rest and a break. And God's not up there saying, get up, get over there. No, you sleep, you rest, you recover. But you have something to offer still. And my plan, God says, has not changed still. Moses Ten Commandments promise in all of those sacrifices of the Savior Jesus who's to come, all the thread of history, and he completed it and he will complete it. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. I thought about this. What if Elijah, when he gave his demand, God, just take me home, kill me. You know how, you know, you know how it ended for Elijah, Right? And he rode in that chariot of fire all the way up to heaven. What if God had given, he wouldn't have got the chariot ride. He wouldn't have got, and you see Elijah again in the New Testament, Mount of Transfiguration. Here comes Elijah back. Uh, if I could say anything to us, it would be this. Don't give up. And don't sit and dwell on the thrill being gone in your walk with Christ. Understand that God saved you with a purpose and it's not over for you till God says it's over. And I bet there's a lot of excitement to come. Final verse, and we'll go to the table. Final verse is this. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Paul's going to die for his faith. There might be some persecution coming the Philippians' way. And what does he say as he starts his letter? Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God started it. God's the finisher. Let's pray and go to the table. Lord, we thank you that it's not based on our feelings or our works or our performance. Thank you that our faith and our worth and our value is in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us something to do. We thank you that we can't get too old uh, to be Christians who serve you, or we can't get too uh, uh, whatever it is, that you will always bring it back. Thank you for what you did for Elijah. Thank you what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.